So glad that you're here. I wonder if you know that, that God is looking to create passionate Jesus followers. He is not looking for people that attend church occasionally, give out of some level of, uh, oh, I've got a little bit of extra. He's not looking for people that are just kind of sort of thankful for God. He's not looking for moral people. He's looking for passionate Jesus followers. And more than looking for them, he creates them. It, it's great when we have a desire for God. That's a desire that comes from God. Psalm 37, 4 says, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us his desires for our heart. But God is looking to create passionate Jesus followers. And I fail at that constantly. Constantly. I don't know about you, where you're at, whether you feel like you fail as a passionate Jesus follower or whether you feel like you, you're, you're killing it, like you're, you're, you're making it happen kind of a deal. And the, the, the problem is, is, that, is that we find ourselves in this place of complacency. There, just, there isn't enough persecution going on here in America. So we should praise God when Christians are seemingly persecuted, although no one's had their head cut off in America recently for their faith. I highly doubt it. For their Christian faith. We, uh, we, we should be thankful for that as it drives us to God. We should be thankful when God drives us to himself. The, the problem is that so many of us in America have come to this point where we believe that it is all up to us. And in part, that's just a fundamental misunderstanding about what the scriptures teach. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about who God is. That I better do enough good in order for God to receive me. And if I do enough good in my own eyes, then I believe that God has received me. And so what the church often creates is hypocritical people who can look like they're checking the box, look like they're making it happen, and yet they still don't. They still aren't reaching it even though they believe that they are but then there's a lot of us who walk around with shame and guilt and we consistently feel as though we are never ever measuring up and the solution is Jesus but let me get into our passage here this morning which is extensive it is lengthy I'm going to read the entire thing here Genesis chapter 17 uh, let me just tell you why you need to know this. It's, it's nearly impossible to understand the New Testament without understanding uh, Genesis chapter 17, really the entirety of Genesis. But you, you cannot understand the New Testament. You cannot understand even the book of Galatians without no understanding what's going on in Genesis chapter 17. It is vitally important. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. 
Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the promise. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. That may be the first time you've ever heard foreskin said in church. I don't know, but there you go. Here we go. I got off track here. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where was I? Foreskins. Okay. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael is the product of Abraham shacking up with Hagar. That was the, the story last week. We skipped a little bit of the section there, which we're going to come back to. But I just wanted to give you some information there. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham 
and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with, uh, with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, uh, when it comes to circumcision, I've got a tip for you. All right? I just sink in. Okay. Uh, don't wait till you're 99. <laughs> or 13, for that matter. All right? Uh, that, is, that is painful. That is painful. What is this talking about? It seems really weird uh, in our day to really be talking about circumcision and that this would be uh, any type of a topic, that it would be even associated with this. There are anti-circumcision type folks today who, and if you're one of them, so glad that you're here. Uh, we're not necessarily pro-circumcision uh, or anti-circumcision anymore. You'll know more about that uh, later. But, uh, but it, people are against that. There's this idea of uh, associating with mutilation and, and things of that nature. So why would we be talking about this? Well, this religion, God's way of doing business was to say, I want you to be marked in this way. It was a common way for people in, in that day and age, even of other religions and people groups, to use circumcision as a rite of passage. It's used in that way in order for people to, I don't know, express themselves in some private way. We're not, we're not entirely sure. But uh, God had said, I want you to be circumcised. I want you to be marked in me, and I want you to be marked in this way. I want there to be something so significant about you that you will know that uh, you are mine, and I know that you, that you are mine as well. So that's in part what he's doing. Let's look at the uh, look at the past here. If we were to look at chapter twelve uh, and and following, it says in chapter twelve there's the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I'll make, make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls Abram out of this pagan country, out of paganism, and he says, I want you to go do this, and, and you're going to be the father of a great nation and many people, and you're, you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. But the problem is, is that Abram is uh, barren. Him, him and Sarai cannot have children. They can't have children. And so they're going on and on, and they get this promise like 24 years ago. 24 years ago, he's 75 years old when God calls him. And God says, I'm going to give you kids. And so he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And then finally he gets to, did I, did I think it was 80, uh, he's 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So he's 86 years old, and he's going, man, where is this kid? Perhaps God wants me to have a kid through my handmaiden, uh, through a servant girl, a slave, whatever she was. And so Sarai says, hey, why don't you take Hagar and do this? And so he has a kid through Hagar, and he, 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 he finally, maybe God's going to use this. In fact, he still believes that God is going to use this son, Ishmael, from this slave girl. And so he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And he gets to chapter 15, and God 
lays out a covenant for him. He lays out this, this covenant, and he basically says, hey, cut these animals in half. And so Abram is thinking to himself, okay, we're going to make an agreement between me and God. And this is going to be the deal, the way that this is going to go down. I'm, I'm going to do this for God. God's going to do that for me. That's at least what we would be thinking. We'd be thinking, okay, we're both going to walk in between these animals like they did in that day. We're going to walk in between these animals, and we're going to say together, hey, if, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And so that's what we would be thinking is going to take place. But what ends up happening is that God himself goes through in between these animals. God himself makes a promise. And God himself says, this is what is going to take place. You are going to have a land and a people and so on. And so God makes that promise. And in between that is where Abram and Sarai make this mistake with uh, having Ishmael through Hagar. And so then we come to the end of chapter 16. He has Ishmael. He's 86 years old. 13 years later, he's 99 years old. He's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I need to get to my other notes here. Here we go. I am God Almighty, he says. God comes to him, and he says... I want you to know who I am. And we might say, hey, we've heard the name of God before, but you haven't heard this name before because this name in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. It's the first time that it's been spoken in the scriptures, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He calls himself El Shaddai. And El Shaddai is essentially this, the all-powerful, the omnipotent, the creator of all things. God comes to him, and he, the first thing that he wants him to know is he says, I, I, I know that you've been waiting for 24 years. I know that it seems like forever. I know that it seems like, like you cannot wait anymore, but I want you to know. And I know that it seems impossible that you would have a kid, but I want you to know who you're talking to. You are speaking with El Shaddai. You're speaking with the all-powerful God, the omnipotent God, who is in control of all things at all times. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign ruler over all things. So he comes and he says this. And then he says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says this about this. He says, this opening is no bargain. These are the conditions in which God can give rather than get. All that he desires, for he wills no distant or half-hearted relationship. God comes to him and he says, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I want you to be, what is it? I want you to be blameless, but this word blameless does not mean sinless. It means whole. It signifies complete, unqualified surrender, according to Sidney Gradanius, another commentator. It, does, it doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm just kind of like, yeah, thanks, God. I appreciate it. Thanks for walking through that covenant for me. Thanks for taking all the responsibility for this. God says, no, you have a role to play even though there's going to be issues. 
You have a role to play. He wants people who are so passionate about him, they see the amazing grace that God gives to them, and then they walk in wholeness. They walk before him as blameless people, and what ends up happening in their life is that they fulfill, Abram will fulfill this blessed, in order to be a blessing, motif that it talks about in chapter 12. He's going to fulfill this blessing that God has for you and I and for all people. It's going to be amazing. Verse 3 says this, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is, is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Abram hears this from God, and he immediately falls down on his face. The thing that we understand is this, is that he recognizes the weight of the situation that he's in right now. He recognizes the master-servant footing of the covenant. He recognizes the fact that, man, he is my master and I am his servant and he wants to give me something. He wants to bless me and so my response must be one of humility. Now oftentimes we come to God and we say, God, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What kind of a God are you? I mean, is, it, is he like this? Is he like that? You know, is, it, is he going to ask me to do things that I don't want to do? Those kinds of things. But Abram, at this time, immediately recognizes his role in this whole situation, which is that he is subservient to El Shaddai. He is subservient to this God who has saved him. Let me put this in the context of our salvation. The chapter 15 is talking about the first part of this covenant where instead of Abram going through the covenant and making some sort of commitment, God says, I, may I become like these animals if you, Abram, do not fulfill your obligations. God says, I'm going to take the punishment if you don't do it. And that's exactly what happens at the cross. That is pointing forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, what is he doing? He's fulfilling that covenant which said, may I become like these animals, uh, cut in half, cut off, as it were, from his people, if you do not fulfill your covenant. That is what took place. And so what's happening at this point is that now God says, as a result of what I've done for you here, this is how I want you to respond. See, God always works in this way. God always works in this way. When he saves Israel out of Egypt, he completely saves them. He doesn't stand in, in Egypt and say, hey, you guys better do what I ask you to do. Here's some Ten Commandments. Everyone sign those commandments before we leave. Do you know, you know what's required of you? Okay, okay. Everybody sign the commandments. Everybody do this. No, he doesn't. He saves them out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years, enslaved for 400 years. He takes them through the Red Sea, which is like a baptism, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai. He gives them 
the Ten Commandments. And he says, I am the God who has saved you. Now I want you to respond to me and my salvation of you in these ways. And God is saying the same thing to you here this morning. I am the God who has saved you. And I want you to respond in these ways. He's saying that to Abram in this place. I am the God who has rescued you. I am the God who went through the covenant for you. And here's how I want you to respond in this. And so Abram responds appropriately. Like a servant, he falls down and he begins to worship God in this way. And he understands what is taking place. And so verse 5 says this, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be, called, shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now I want you to notice something when you look at um, Sarah as well. So he changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. There's a breath that's added. Abraham, right? Sarah, or Sarai, same thing. It says in verse 15 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. What is God doing here? Why did God change their name? Well, in the Hebrew, what you would see is that the only thing that is added to their names is one letter. In our in our alphabet, it would be an H. And really what it is in Hebrew, it's a sound. It's a ha. It's, the, it's a sound of a breath. It's a sound of a breath. And what some commentators have pointed out is this, is that we have no proof of this, but what we see in this is that there's, there's a sense in which it's coming from God's name. What is God's name? Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh. It's this idea, of, it's this idea of God taking a piece of his name and he's giving it to Abram so that Abram is no longer just Abram, but he's Abraham. And Sarai is no longer just Sarai, but she's Sarah. It's as though he's saying, I'm giving you a piece of me in order for you to be able to be who I want you to be, in order for you to be able to respond in the ways, in order for you to be able to fulfill all the things that I have planned for you, you must have a piece of me, God says. God says, you must have a piece of me. It says this in, in verse 6. I really want you to notice this here. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now stop for a second right there. You saw at the beginning of the passage where it says, walk before me. I mean, and, and what that means is walk, walk in front of me, live your life in relation to I, who I am, and be blameless. Be somebody who is whole, who's wholly devoted to me. And when I hear that at first, one of the things that I think is I think, man, God really has some incredible restrictions, right? Like, God, I, cannot, I don't know that I can be somebody who is always walking before you, who's always blameless, who's always whole, Living my life in relation to who you are. 
I don't know where you're at, whether you would say, okay, I've always got this figured out, as, as, I, was, as I was saying at the beginning of the sermon. But I'm not somebody who, live, who can live as though I've, I'm doing this perfectly. So what do I need? Well, I need a peace of God. I need a peace of God in me. In their day, their names meant so much. It was like your life is laid out for you according to your name. Names meant direction. And God is saying your direction is in this way. And then he says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Look at what God is saying. He's, saying. he's not saying, and you must, and you must, and you must try really hard to do a bunch of things for God so that God will like you more. God is not saying, if you do not straighten up, stop fooling around with that servant girl. And of course, God does not want us to commit adultery, etc., but God is not waiting. God is not waiting until you fix yourself up, until you do this. When we come to God, our faith goes like this. God, I see your sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I see your sacrifice there, and I put my faith in the fact that you have said that you took the punishment, that you took the pain, that you took all of that for me. And as a result, I want to live in this way. And God says something to us that's even better. It's not, hey, I did this for you, now you better. How many times does that happen in our relationships, in your marriage? After, after all the things that I've done for her, she withholds from me? After all the ways that I have uh, cleaned up after and fixed up and whatever for my husband and he treats me this way? After all of these things, we say, I've done something, a, a gracious act for you and you should respond to me appropriately by giving me everything that I've ever dreamed of. The problem is, is that that is not true grace when you're gracious in order to get something that's not graciousness that's a transaction that's a transactional relationship if you're somebody who just has re relationships maybe you're not married and so you give and you give and you give to your work or to a friendship or to something and and in response to that you expect that, hey, you would treat me like family and I should be, we should be closer friends. Or you should respond appropriately to me at work as I give all of my time and energy to this because I can. 
See, that's not a gracious act. That's not being blessed in order to be a blessing. That's saying, this is a transactional relationship. I do for you, and you better repay me, otherwise it's over. I got to say that 99% of the time in relationships these days, this is what I see happen. It's transactional. It's what happens in our marriage when we have fights. It's, it's transactional. But this is not God saying, uh, this is a transactional relationship, Abraham. It's not transactional. It is a one-sided deal. It is God saying, walk before me and be blameless. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will, I will, I will, I will. What is God going to do in your life? When you open yourself up to him, when you see his gospel, when you see what he's done for you, when you really take into account the fact that I am a sinner in need of grace, when you take into, the account, into account that you're far more sinful than you even imagine, when you see the depth of how messed up you and I are, like if we could peer into your heart and you could peer into my heart, we'd say, dude, this is messed up. This is crazy. If we really saw ourselves for who we are and what we deserve from God and then contemplate how Jesus has gone to the cross for us, there'd be no way that we would not fall on our face before God and say, God, holy cow, it's so amazing to hear from you. It's so amazing that you would work in my life in these ways. And then you're going to add to that that you're going to make me fruitful, that you're going to be the one who's going to do the work in my life, that you're going to be the one who does this and that, and you're going to be continually working in and through me as you've changed my name, you've changed the trajectory of my life. That's what's amazing. Now here's the issue. And the issue is that far too many of us Far too many of us care nothing about those things. And in fact, all of us, to some degree or another, find ourselves in complacent Christianity. We turn, we turn the church into this transactional relationship. I will come as long as you. I'll be a part of community as long as I'm getting all, as long as I'm buying into X, Y, and Z, I'll give. It's, we, we've turned life into something transactional. And here's the thing. That God does not work transactionally. See, circumcision is a mark on the body. In that day, there was pain and there was blood That was to bring about this mark on a person's life. That they were to be marked by something. And it is a reminder of what God has done for them. In fact, if you were to look with me at, at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, it says something very interesting. 2 Peter chapter 1 in... Uh, verse 5, 
It says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. He, he, he's going through all of these good things that should be a part of our life. And he's saying you should be growing in these things. You should be marked by something that is causing you to grow in these ways. Grow in these ways. He says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're growing in these ways, if you're growing in these, in these things, it's going to keep you from being un ineffective. It's going to keep you from being unfruitful. Now, what you can take from that right now is you can say, oh, dang, I better start stepping it up. I need to be a super nice person. I need to start not being transactional in my, in my uh, marriage or in my relationships. I need to start doing this and stop doing that and so you can come up with this list. He says... In verse 9, Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 1. For whoever lacks these qualities, if you're not growing in those things, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What does Peter say? Peter says, like, if you're not growing, if you're not producing fruit then the one thing that you have not done is, is not white-knuckling it. The one thing that you have, have, haven't done is not just trying harder. The one thing that you haven't done isn't just being a better Christian. The one thing that you haven't done and the thing that you don't realize is that you and I, when we're not growing in those ways, when we are not fruitful for God, we are blind. And we're blind. What are we blind to? He's so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When you forget what Jesus has done for you on the cross, when you forget how sinful you actually are, and I actually am, and all of the pain and the suffering that God went through, when you forget about that, then your life will cease to grow. But as the gospel grows in your life, you will begin to be a passionate Jesus follower. Now, this is how we express this at our church. We just shared this at the membership meeting recently. And so uh, what we want to talk about here at Outward Church is this, is that we want to love Jesus and live outward. We want to love Jesus and live outward. Which slide do you got up there, Jared? Do you got one for me? Oh, yeah. We exist to make disciples who love Jesus and live outward. So the love Jesus aspect is simply this. To see the gospel in all of its glory so that we can respond in the way that Abram does, the way that Abraham does, by immediately acting on circumcision, by immediately being marked in the body for God. By being marked by who he is. So it says we exist to make disciples who love Jesus and live outward. Basically, we exist to make passionate, passionate Jesus followers. Next slide for me. And what does it mean to love Jesus? It means that we are marked by his story, his people, and his rule. 
And what does it mean to live outward? It means that we give and that we serve and that we speak about Jesus, for Jesus. Go to the next slide. The first part, who we are. People who love Jesus are marked by his story. What I just laid out for you in 2 Peter and in Genesis chapter 17. We are marked by, in the same way that Abram was marked with circumcision, we are marked by Jesus and his death on the cross. And it means this, I see myself in that story. When it talks about Abram living before God. And being blameless. We see ourselves in the story of Jesus. We know that we haven't been blameless. But we know that we're marked by him from the cross. When we talk about how we're marked by his people. It means that we're engaged with God's people. It means that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. It means that this is integrated into our life. It means that we live with love and we play love out in our community. It means that people are speaking into our life. And then we're speaking into other people's lives. The last one there, his rule. What does it mean to be marked by the rule of Jesus? When Abram bows down before God, when he hears from God, he is living in submission to God. Why do we talk about the rule of Jesus? Because we often say here, Jesus might be your savior, but is he your king? Is Jesus your king? Is he my king? A king has rule, has reign. We live in submission to him. We respond the way that Abram does, by bowing down before him, and we recognize, you are my master, I am your servant. I live in submission to Jesus. Now, when we get that right, when we live as people who are marked by Jesus, that means we're loving Jesus fully throughout our life. Let's go to the next one. What happens is this, is that what we do is affected by that. When we realize the blessing that we've been given through Jesus Christ on the cross, when we see what he's done for us, we realize that, that it affects what we do. It affects how we respond to our community. And so what does it mean to live outward? People who live outward are marked by giving, serving, and speaking. They're marked by giving. They're imitating the gospel. Instead of my marriage relationship being transactional, as I integrate the gospel to it, it is no longer transactional, but it is grace-based. It is gospel-oriented. My gospel identity speaks to the identity that I carry into my marriage relationship. And it means that I sacrifice for you for you, my spouse, she's right there. Okay, I, I sacrifice, nobody else in this room. I sacrifice for my spouse, not so that I get something back from her, but just to give that to her. It means the gospel has penetrated my life. It, it, it can be applied in so many different ways. It can be applied financially. People who are marked by Jesus and his gospel and have their identity rooted in him are people who give. There's a generosity about their lives. But then the second thing is this, is that they, they serve. People who are marked by Jesus, they live outward. They are blessed in order to be a blessing. I'm blessed in order to give back to my community. 
I'm blessed in order to give back to my wife and kids. I'm blessed in order to give to people at the church. I'm blessed in order to serve at Richmond Elementary or one of the other elementaries. I'm blessed in order to serve above and beyond what I get paid for in my job. I'm blessed in order to serve sacrificially. That's radical. The third one there is to speak, is to communicate the gospel. When you are a passionate Jesus follower, when you respond the way that Abram does, and you bow down before God and you say, you're the master, I am the servant, I want to walk before you and be blameless, but I need your help, I need your help, and you experience the grace of Jesus. You experience the fact that I'm so sinful that God had to die for me. When you experience that, what takes place in your life? You want to tell other people. You want to speak the gospel. You want to communicate the gospel. If you've got kids and it's difficult for you to communicate the gospel, one of the things that may be, may be lacking in your life is one, training. You may have all the desire in the world and you're just like, I just don't know what to do. But another thing that may be lacking is you yourself don't know the gospel. You're trying to create moral little hellions, but the fact is, is they're not growing into what you want them to grow into. So you're saying, I'm just going to throw some Bible verses at you, and I'm going to open up this, this Bible, and I'm going to read this stuff to you. But the truth is that our kids don't internalize things that are just read to them. Our kids internalize things that they see acted out in front of them. The truth is, is that my kids are very much relative of responding to my own walk with Jesus. And that's difficult to accept. In order to speak and to communicate the gospel, remember, you got to go back to loving Jesus. What's my identity? How, you know, do I know his story? Am I engaged with his people? In order to speak and to communicate the gospel with people that you know, with people that you know are not believers in Jesus Christ. In order to do that, it has to be something that has penetrated your life. I've got to wrap up right here. And that is this. Are you a passionate Jesus follower or are you sitting on the bench? Are you somebody who's actively wanting to grow in Jesus Christ? Or is this something that you do on the weekends? I wish you would not do that. I wish you would, would not uh, act this way. I wish you would not act religious. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this. There was a bunch of people who were saying, hey, we should still be circumcised. Then we'll be good people. They're basically saying, I need to do more good works. I need to do more good works. The Apostle Paul writes the entire book of Galatians in order to say to them, hey, it's not through good works. It's through Jesus Christ on the cross. And then Paul says this, I wish they'd go ahead and just emasculate themselves. Just cut that baby off. If a little bit is good, a lot is better, right? That's what he says. That's what the scripture says. I'm just, you know, don't hate me. But that's, that's God's word to you. It's ridiculous to think about that. It's your good works. It's your occasional attendance at church. It's your lackluster relationship with God is kind of getting you somewhere. Those works are dead. Those are dead works. If you want to know more about that, read the book of Galatians tonight. Those works are dead. It is only through Jesus Christ 
that we have relationship with God. It is only through his sacrifice. It is only because God works in us and through us by the power of his spirit to change us, to take our heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. This is what I want to ask you to do. I want you to pray passionately that God would soften your heart, that he'd convict you of where you need Jesus in your life where you need to experience the gospel and that you would grow in and through that. And then lastly is this, is that you gotta tell somebody. You walk out of here and you're like, yep, feel convicted right now and you don't have anybody to talk to. Like you might mention something to one of your Christian friends. Yeah, that was, that was pretty good. But no one's holding you accountable. Like that's, that's not gonna go anywhere, sorry. I mean, I'm glad you're convicted. That's fine, great, good. But you should fill out a connection card. You should come tell somebody. You should get involved in a community group. You should go to your community group and say, hey, I've been living in sort of a lie. I realized today that I'm just kind of this religious person that's been doing these works, and I'm not really connected with who Jesus is. And that's what I want to encourage you towards. Tell somebody. Walk before him and be blameless because Jesus went to the cross for you. He fulfilled this covenant He's the one that took the pain that bled on your behalf so you don't, you don't need to be physically circumcised. So we can praise him just for that, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we, may we be people who are marked by you. May we be people who are marked in you. Lord God, in, in so many ways, you, you marked Abraham by giving him a piece of, of your name, it sure seems like, and Sarah at the same. And Lord, we, we have been influenced by you, but Lord, I think that there's people in this room that have just been going through the motions. They've just been going through the motions thinking that, uh, that this idea of circumcision or these doing works is going to save them without really realizing how amazing you are and what you've done for us. God, would you give us a fresh look at your gospel and what you've done for us? May we see everything that you've done for us. May we experience it anew in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.